Galatians chapter 3 this morning. Our focus will be on verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read 1 through 6 because as I find in Paul kind of typical, one verse is never an outline separated from the other verses. Verse 6, I think, completes the first five, but also leads us on into six through nine. And so I want to include that as we read. And then I've asked Eli Van if he would ask God's rich blessing upon the proclamation of his word. Galatians 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he then, who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It's quite a contrast between Galatians 3, verse 1, Paul's second rebuke of the Galatians, and his first rebuke back in chapter 1. In verse 11, where he says, I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. He says, I would have you know, brethren, we... we See that term of brotherly love, that we, we actually think of it as, as his affection for his brothers and sisters, his disciples in Christ. And here he says, you foolish Galatians. And there are some who, who do accuse Paul of doing what Jesus said never do, to call another man or brother, sister, a fool. But here we see Paul in his transition, his working from his, the message of his independent apostolic authority in the first two chapters is setting the stage for something else, setting the stage really to flesh out what he is protecting, what he is defending, that truth of the gospel. So he goes from brethren... And he's justified because of what he sees here, his indignation at them. He says, you foolish Galatians. It's as if he called them knuckleheads, you nitwits, you fools. What are you doing? Not that Paul doubted that they were sincere believers. But he's saying, how can you do that as a sincere believer? How can you look at, and really this is what he calls them to look at, is their own experience. Look at what you've experienced as a believer. Look not only at the beginning of your Christian life, but then as you've gone on, and as we will see Paul in his language, to the future as well. The first rebuke, as I say, in chapter 1, Paul's amazed. He, he, he is the one who kind of is taken aback that they were so quickly deserting him who called them, he says. 
It's as if they were befuddled by the teaching, that, that these people came in uh, from James. And again, you, you look at that as either name droppers or the fact that they, they were believers, they were Christians, believing that we believe in Christ who, who died for us, but there was something being added on, something that, that caught the imagination and fancy of the Galatians, as it still does many Christians today. Somebody coming in with a different gospel because it's got that part of the truth, but there's more. Oh, you haven't heard the rest. And they were befuddled by that, this promise that Paul's gospel didn't quite get it all. And their thinking was muddled, Paul says, by some who want to distort the gospel. So they were confused by the message, but they were also taken in some confusion by the people themselves, how they represented themselves. And so we, we see a shift here from that formal introduction that we had in chapter 2, 16 through 21, the introduction where we, he lays out this justification by faith, pointing at faith and telling us that's kind of where we're, we're headed with this. And, and looking at his own experience, his own um, coming to Christ, his remembering that day on the Damascus Road. It's from his point of view, but now he turns and preaches to them or teaches them, you foolish Galatians. He looks at them. And it is with irony, I think, we, we, we see this where he is talking about the grace of God and how beautiful that is and, and how righteousness comes not through the law but through Christ, faith in him alone. And then we have this irony, oh foolish Galatians. This, we, we see and it, it, it is, it is an, an anger. It is this mood of, of disappointment, of, of reproach that he has. But the key motif here, I think, is found in verse 4 of the section that we read. Did you suffer so many things in vain? Did you experience so many things? It can be things that they experienced that were very good, things they experienced possibly persecution. Remember, these were, for the most part, the Galatian Christians were pagans when they came to Christ. They, they were people who, who basically renounced that lifestyle and, and changed. And we know that still goes on today. Those who are radically transformed by Christ do meet persecution in their immediate family or with their friends or with their colleagues. And it could be both. But he's asking them, did you suffer all these things in vain? If it, indeed it was in vain? Did, was there no purpose for these things? Was there, there no good for these things? So Paul has spoken of his own coming to faith, and now he looks at their experiences. And he's going to do two things, the experiences of their own lives, and then he's going to move us. And that's where verse 6 kind of moves us in, not only that as a question or a, a statement to them to get them to think, but also, yeah, and if you, have you also looked at the Scriptures? Look at your own lives and look at the scriptures. They will tell you a story that you're not thinking about. You're not, how can you start with where you have started? What has happened to you? 
and do things that just do not comport with that beginning. Things that, you know, I'm a child of the 60s and 70s, things that don't jive with your experience and the scriptures that you've been taught. So what he's saying is your own conscience, your own experience is going to witness against you in the error that you're embarking on, the things, the road that you're going down, the things that you're doing. So that's the key motif, but the key theological thread, the, the key antithesis that we see woven beginning, I think really with 2, 16 through 21 and on down to chapter 5, verse 12, is works of the law versus Christ's faith, faith in Christ alone. That's the theological import here. It's that idea of faith. And Paul is expecting a normal course of faith here. You begin with the Spirit. You walk by the Spirit. That's where we're headed. Uh, Packer, J.I. Packer says, keeping in step with the Spirit. It's a very good translation of that. And then being completed through the Spirit. That's what Paul is expecting here. But that's not what Paul sees here as going on in the lives of the Galatian believers. So he calls them, you foolish Galatians, because they have moved into opinion and they're moving away from the truth. Or if we could put it this way, there is truth about God and there is untruth about God. And it behooves Christians to know what the truth is and what's the anchor of that truth. And so he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And there's really no other way, I think, to, to write that in, in English. Is that these people have been bewitched. There is something that has been presented to them that has caught their fancy that has transfixed them. Now, this word foolish that we see here is, is not a, a fact that they're stupid. They're, they're not stupid. Uh, my first boss had a sign above his, his desk, and every time you would do your annual review, you couldn't help but seeing it over his shoulder as he talked to you. you know, stupid is forever. Ignorance can be fixed. These are not stupid people. That's not what the foolish is. But it is a failure of their intellect. It is a failure of their understanding. It's a failure of their comprehension of what's going on. It's, it's not a dullness. It's a susceptibility to a fascination or a transfixing that has come upon them. It's a failure to draw the obvious conclusion from their own experience in Christ. And so Paul thinks of it as, who's done this to you? Who, who has brought this influence? Literally, the word bewitched means to exert an influence through the eye. It's where we get the phrase evil eye. When somebody gives you the evil eye, I, I don't know that I can actually do it, but I know it when I see it, when you get the evil eye. And that's where it comes from. You have been looked at. You, you have been given the eye, and, and you have been transfixed by that. And in a sense, all temptation that comes upon us is bewitching, is it not? 
Because what it does is it gets us to focus on something. We get that evil eye and we begin to set aside truth of scripture in regard to things that we would normally do. Our Christian discipline or our Christian practice or the way that we hold to doctrine. We become bewitched by that. It wants us to set aside what we know as truth and move to something that is being at least clothed and presented as truth. But Paul anchors it in and brings them back to what he's already done. He's saying, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? See, I, I don't know if that's an intentional play on words, but you've been given the evil eye, but your eye has seen the truth because I presented Christ and him crucified to you. Now, there are some who take this as, as somehow Paul portrayed this in the public square or something. I don't understand what they're getting at. But the, the word means that he has put it on a billboard in a sense. He has presented the facts of the gospel to them in vivid, descriptive language. We don't need to go see a Mel Gibson movie to understand the blood that was shed by Christ. He presented to them in a way that they can understand publicly declared the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But it's not just the crucifixion as a fact. I think Tim alluded to that when he did the reading this morning from Luke. It's not crucifixion as a fact of an event, but the crucifixion of the truth that it was the Messiah, the Son of God, was crucified dead, buried, and risen. Because Paul, when Paul speaks of Christ, he says, literally it would be in the Greek, as having been crucified. And it's in the perfect tense in the Greek. And what that means simply is that it is an event, something that has happened in the past, but with continuing effects, continuing power into the future. Continuing significance for the people of God. And so he says he's presented to them as if on a billboard, as if proclaimed without doubt what he's speaking of, that Jesus is not still on the cross. That he is living. That he is ever living to make intercession for his people. That he has indeed risen. He has indeed accomplished his work on the cross, saving all those who believe in him. So he's calling on them. As they look at their own experience, it's not just turn your eyes inward, but it is consider what you have learned, what has happened to you. Consider him who has done it. Consider him who was despised. Consider him who was reviled. Consider him who was reproached, who was oppressed, who was afflicted in your place. Or as 
that great passage that we sang part of this morning from Isaiah chapter 53. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Paul presented that in language that they could understand. This is what happened. This is the truth behind what you believe. And in 1 Corinthians 1, we see that passage where Paul's explaining all of this, it seems to us, kind of unfolding that so we get the reality of this whole thing. He says, consider him, consider Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He says, Christ became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. This is Christ publicly portrayed as crucified. Yes, he was on the cross, but having been crucified, he paid that price, but he now lives, and he now has sent us the Holy Spirit. This is the glory of Christ in his sufferings, that we would see him publicly proclaimed as crucified, knowing how much and how much broader it is than simply there was a cross. He conquered death, he conquered sin, he conquered Satan. So the gospel, Paul says, assumes that there is an absolute truth about God and his way of salvation. And our culture doesn't want to hear it. Our culture holds religion, if they even let you consider religion, to be a matter of private devotion. Well, that's up to you. Or as some of these helps, 12 steps, or whatever they are, programs, worship God as you perceive him to be. And yet there's a truth about God that's given in the scriptures. But our society says, well, you think about God. Whatever you think about what he is or what he is like is is just a matter of opinion. Our society does not hold and does not like us to hold to fixed principles. They don't have transcendent ideals. But Paul says, no, I publicly proclaim that which was given to me personally by Christ, the truth of his suffering, of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, of his having been crucified. Christ lives. Paul goes on because he understands that our culture, as the culture of the Galatians, the things that were being presented to them by the antagonizers is confusing. There is confusing over the meaning of biblical Christianity. We can be confused as believers. What do these things mean? There are things in Scripture that are difficult to understand. They're difficult for our minds to put together. But Christians are labeled as judgmental. Why? Because we want to adhere to certain moral principles. People say, no, you, you, you're judging me. When you, when you hold to that, you judge me. Or we hold to an exclusive religion. You've heard that, right? We don't like Christianity because Christianity is exclusive. You've got to be inclusive. And so we're labeled intolerant. We're labeled anti-diversity. 
because many people believe there are many roads to God, that in a sense we all worship the same God. You've seen the bumper sticker, right? Coexist. It started out as three religions, so only three of the letters in the word coexist represented religions, Islam, Judaism, Christianity. But what has happened now is people have changed the letters and the bumper stickers have evolved so that every letter represents another religion. Paganism is represented by the peace symbol. There's another symbol for Wiccans. There's another symbol for the Chinese yin-yang now. And all of those roads are supposed to be worshiping the same God and finding the same God. No wonder there's confusion. Lord, believe whatever you want to believe. But even some Christians add to that confusion, do they not? Because we can hold to a non-Christian view of Christianity. We have a form of moralism, a conformity to a standard of behavior that we have invented sometimes or embellished really ourselves. External rituals, institutions, characterizations of Christianity that put people off or give people a false idea of what Christianity is. And I think what Paul is getting at here when he looks at that is these works of the law, these things that people want to do, and it seems to be a, a, a part of, of people's lives that we, we, we want to do something for our salvation. We want to do something that kind of represents my, my part that no one else and even God can do. I want to be part of that. But I think Paul would bring us back by these words, Christ being publicly portrayed as crucified, is that we need to point out that the end, the, the beginning, the, everything points back to the cross. It's because of Christ's work on the cross. And I, I, I don't know, I see the bumper sticker, it's actually my neighbor's have, you know, they got the license plate, the vanity plate that says Co-3 exists. They can't have, can't have the E. They have Co-3 exists. I don't know what they mean by that. But they've got it, and they obviously believe it. But there is an irony, is there not? That the last letter in Coexist is the T that's supposed to look like the cross, and all of those roads, no matter which ones they think they're on, and the detours they take in life all end up where? They have to deal with the cross. We as Christians cannot lose sight of the cross. Paul would say, I'm trying to point out to you folks that there is a distinction between the gospel of grace and, and a moralism that says if I keep these things, if I do these things religiously, I do them daily, I, I do them sincerely, that that's the same thing as grace. And so Paul asks four rhetorical questions here in rapid succession. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, by hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Have you begun by the Spirit? Are you now perfecting 
being perfected by the flesh? Uh, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He, he's asking, he's asking, he's asking, but they all boil down, really, I think, to one question. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? That, that's what he says. I, I want to know this one thing. It, it involves these other things. It involves, you know, what happened to you at the moment of conversion? What happened to you when Christ invaded your life? It's not us coming to him. He came to us. Isn't that what the scripture says? No one comes to the Father unless the Father draws them. He's saying, what happened at that moment? How does a Christian make it to the end of the Christian life? Not only your beginning, but are you looking there at the, at the end, at the completion? What does it cost to follow Christ? You, you suffered some things, perhaps persecution, perhaps some, some things that were very difficult to deal with as a Christian, but there's a cost involved. Have you thought about that? What you've already gone through. What, what does God do when he supplies the Spirit? And he worked these miracles among you. What, what was God thinking? What were you thinking about what God did? But again, I think it boils down to, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Because faith is not moralism. And he's wanting to zero in on what that is. And Paul here is therefore, I think, assuming something central to his theology, but missing from our postmodern relativistic culture. And that is when a person comes to Christ and is justified, that person receives the Spirit of God. There is a difference. We do not all worship the same God. We do not all come to faith in different ways. There is only one way to come to faith. It is through the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of faith that he has given. And it's, the language here brings this out, I think, in, in verse 2, he asks, Did you receive the Spirit of works by works of the law? But in verse 10, I think he brings it back to what he really means or how we would really put it. Does he then, does God then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles? He's showing them, yes, you received it. It was a gift, but remember it was given. It was given by God. This is the mark of the new age of salvation. It was portrayed in the prophets. In Joel chapter 2 we read, the words, I will pour out my spirit, he says through Joel. I will pour out my spirit in those days. But Paul is asking the question, was it? Was it by means of the law or was it by means of hearing accompanied by faith? Did you do it by working toward it and achieving it by merit or what, did it come by hearing the gospel, hearing the grace of God accompanied by faith. 
And I don't know, I've studied this and I'm going to continue to study because there is some controversy on what the works of the law are. Are they simply the boundary markers that delineate what is a Gentile and what is a Jew? Those things that are called ethnic boundaries. Or is it something else? And my conclusion, at least at this point, is that Paul is not speaking of what makes a Jew a Jew, but what he is speaking of here is human action done in obedience to the law of Moses, to the Torah. What a man does based on what the law tells him to do. But the Galatians had an inner witness. They knew that they had been, they had come to faith by the Spirit that they had come to receive the Spirit by faith. And that was how they came into fellowship with believers. That righteousness comes by faith, as Paul says in Romans, and faith comes by hearing, but how can they hear unless someone preach? They had Christ publicly portrayed as crucified before them. And by hearing, accompanied by faith, they came to Christ. Thomas Schreiner says, Faith is not a private reality that arises from inner reflection or as a result of philosophical investigation. No man comes to Christ by thinking it through on his own and saying, Boy, that sounds like a really good thing to do. I think I will do that. He doesn't choose the T instead of the X or the O or the E. He doesn't reflect on it in his own brain and say, you know what, that fits me. Whatever floats your boat, but I'll do that. Hearing means that they faithfully received what was presented to them. They were attentive to the word of God, that they trusted not only its contents, but they trusted the one who gave the scriptures. And there was an accompanying discipline disposition to obey, to walk by that truth. So Paul would have them know or ask this question, I guess, again, because I'm not sure that history tells us exactly how the Galatians, in the end, received this little letter that Paul wrote. But he asked them, can you be so foolish so as to begin in the spirit and try to finish it off by means of the flesh. Can, can, can you really do that? Begin by the spirit of God, but think that you either continue or you can bring it to completion by means of the flesh. And so there is that real contrast we, we, we see how Paul puts it together. By the Spirit has a connection with hearing with faith. By the Spirit, hearing with faith. That's how you started, Galatians. But now what I hear is that by the flesh, you've put this connection together with works of the law. And by the flesh, I think we could understand that, that Paul is giving a warning here. He sounds a warning of really what is the human issue or the human propensity 
We want to do something for our salvation. We want to do something. Now, I'm not taking away from Philippians. Some of you may be thinking about Philippians, and, and you're on track if you are, where Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But it doesn't say, now I'm going to go and earn on a performance basis with God, I'm going to earn that salvation. I'm going to show him that God was right, that I really did deserve salvation. I'm going to... No. <laughs> He says, can you be so foolish to think that you have the Spirit and now you have to work for it in the flesh? You have to do this? I really think that the agitators, the Judaists in Galatians were those who insisted that righteousness before God equals faith plus law observance. Faith plus Torah. You came to Christ by faith, but in order to continue, you have to keep the law. But all they had experienced to this point had showed them that the Spirit had not only a begun, beginning ministry in them, but a continuing ministry. And again, if you're thinking of Philippians, perhaps 1.6 comes to mind because Paul uses the same two words there that are key in Philippians 1.6 as we have here in Galatians. Did you begin by the Spirit and you're going to continue some other way? What does he say in Philippians? He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You're not completing your works. He is. He who began, he will complete. And Paul says it here. He who provides you, verse 5. He who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles. These demonstrations of power among you will bring it to completion. That day, he uses the word here in the New American Standard anyway, translated being perfected, being completed. So justification, which is the topic that he began in 2.16 and continued, justification by faith alone in Christ alone is a doctrine you can live by. Again, to quote one of the theologians, Philip Ryken says, the way into the Christian life is also the way on in the Christian life. Did you begin by receiving the Spirit of God as given by God? Yes. And you will continue to walk by the Spirit. And you will be completed through that Spirit. That there is no Christ plus. Coming to Christ in the Spirit and then working your salvation by yourself, in yourself, by self-attainment. The Christian life begins by faith, continues by faith, is completed through faith. Faith for salvation and justification, yes. We're sinners. We need a Savior. Christ is the Savior. There is the truth about God. Christ, having been crucified, is the Savior. He conquered death. He is the one who is qualified. You are not. We begin our Christian life by that great salvation. But there's faith for now. 
The Spirit helps us now. He guides us into all the truth now. So the, this justification, this gospel of grace is for the lost, yes, but it's also for the doubtful. It's also for the people who are struggling. It's also for the people who are confused and need to know how to make sense of these things. It's for the depressed. It's for those who are struggling, those who are just needing help. And it's also for completion in us, that which he himself started. And so, with Paul, I think we would all ask ourselves this question. Those who are believers, those who know Christ, who have come to him by faith and have received the Spirit by faith, are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would continue this work that you have begun in us. We believe, and it is for us, if I could use that phrase from your scripture, a steadfast anchor for our souls, that Christ has done this, this is the truth, that it is not by our opinion, not by our own moralism, but by Christ. And we ask that we would walk in that truth, that we would walk in in that gospel light that you have shed upon us, and that we may be faithful in it, that we may grow in it, that we may never continue to be a disciple, a learner, striving with all of our being to know, to be able to worship aright, to be able to, to search the scriptures rightly, to be able to speak rightly of these things. But Father, we ask that you would do it for your glory and honor and for the building up of your church in Christ, we pray. Amen. Would you please rise for the benediction from the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. Paul writes, Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. Amen.